and welcome to Project Between, a podcast about third culture kids and their experiences growing up between many cultures. I'm your host, Hannah, and my guest today is a dear friend of mine from my New York days who describes himself as a fourth culture kid. How very intriguing, right? And so I've invited him to Project Between to hear about his very unique European upbringing in America. Welcome to the show. Alex. Hello, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, we were just saying that we haven't seen each other in forever, uh, more than a decade, probably. Correct. I think it's been 10 years or more since our New York time. Yeah, but I've you know followed you on social media, obviously, and I've always been so interested uh, to see where you'll go next. Thank you, Hannah. So... I've done the same. I've done the same with you as well. So even if we haven't <laughs> been as actively in touch, we have been aware of what we've all been doing. So it's nice to finally mm. actively engage with one another. Yeah, this is this is wonderful. And obviously, for this podcast, we're talking about third culture kid experiences. Right. And I think at first glance, since you're American. It may not appear that you're a, a TCK, right. but yeah, I remember meeting you for the first time when we were in college and yeah, the first time I met you, I thought, oh my gosh, he has such great style. He must be European <laughs> and oh my gosh, he speaks French. And so, yeah, you were like the, the coolest kid on the oh block Lord. for me <laughs> at oh the time. <laughs> I mean, now after hearing your previous interviews i've realized that you were a francophile and pretty obsessed with french <laughs> culture so now it all kind of makes sense <laughs> yes. yeah i was like who is he we must be friends um oh. but then you know i heard a little more about your upbringing and the kinds of schools that you had attended and i got to meet some of the friends that you went to high school with and i right. realized how unique your yeah your upbringing was and through our show, through our interview today, I'm excited to explore more of those topics because I don't think we ever really sat down to go through these questions. Right. I think it's something that no one ever really gets to do in reality. So I think it's such a golden opportunity that you've created this podcast. because it's, Yeah, exactly. It's, I think it's potentially the first time that I've been able to talk to someone about these commonalities in my entire oh, life. Oh, really? Yeah, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, so that's 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 really great. I think I'll get to uh, learn a, a lot more about you through our session today. And so if you're ready, uh, I like to start the show with the TCK questionnaire. I'm ready. Uh, to give yes. our listeners, yeah, some background. And yeah, let's begin. Wonderful. Uh, what is your name and nationality? All right. So my legal name in formal documents is Alejandro Pérez Castells, but everyone calls me Alex. Very few people ever call me Alejandro. And I was uh, born in the United States, but I have double nationality. So I, I'm an American citizen and I'm also a Spanish citizen. Right. And I think we'll get to this a little bit later, but I know that the, the Spanish influence is a very important part of who you are. Yes. I mean, I'm currently living in Spain, so clearly there is a very strong 
and alive uh, bond. We can put it that way. Right. So the next question is: In which countries did you grow up? And if you can sort of walk us through where you went to school and and beyond. Of course. So I think、mm, what makes、uh, potentially this interview slightly more unique than the previous ones is that I am primarily、uh, first generation North American. So I was born and was raised in the United States, specifically in Boston. But that doesn't really depict the full、uh, picture of my upbringing,、uh, considering that my family would, you know, take every opportunity to travel to Europe and South America to visit、uh, both of our extended families. And、um, so I, I was born in、uh, the American Midwest, in Kansas City, Missouri. Oh, what really? I, yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very.、Uh, Weird、uh, anecdote because no one really、uh, expects it, but my parents、uh, they moved to the United States and met in Richmond, Virginia, and then continued their studies、uh, together. Were able to move together to Kansas City, Missouri, and there was like a, a small little colony of Spanish-speaking individuals within the scientific field that、um, all kind of. Worked in this laboratory in the University of Kansas City because there was a, a Spanish、uh, professor, and so he would hire and uh, Spanish uh, speaking uh, students,、uh, and so there was kind of this weird little oasis of Spanish speaking people in Kansas City. I mean, it was you know maybe three or four families to be honest, but、um, I was born in、uh, Kansas City, and my Spanish cousin was also born in Kansas City, and then this other family friend of ours, their daughter, who now lives in the south of Spain, she was also born in Kansas City. So we're kind of these weird little Spanish kids born in the Midwest. But from a from the age of two, or I think before I reached two, my parents moved to Boston on the east coast of the United States. So I say that I was raised in Boston because I have no memory. Of Kansas City whatsoever, and、uh, my sister was also born in Boston, and we were primarily raised on the East Coast.、Um, but as I said, we traveled extensively through Europe and South America to visit、uh, our families, and then for uh, college. Uh, oh wait, I jumped. Sorry, and I did、uh, my high school in a French、uh, school. But I actually、uh, went to this、uh, French school since the age of six. So some people call it like a French immersion school, but this is a term that I had only heard of later on in life.、Um, and、uh, and ever since I was six, I was kind of immersed in this French-speaking environment within the United States, and it was a Quite an enriching experience, to say the least, because、uh, I consider myself part of French culture because of this education. And so, basically, I was at this French school from six until I was seventeen、mm-hmm. when I graduated high school. And then after high school is when I moved to New York City to study fashion design, and where I met、uh, you.、Mm-hmm. And I stayed in New York for I believe like two years after graduation, and、um, I wanted to experience、uh, something other than the North American 
experience because I had lived technically my entire life up until that point in the United States. Right. And so I, I moved to the south of Spain, to Seville, Sevilla, because I uh, was able to um, do an apprenticeship in a, in a gold embroidery studio in the south of Spain. And so I thought it was just a, a golden opportunity to, <laughs> sorry, to, to move to Europe and specifically to Spain and more specifically to Andalusia, which in itself is another variation of Spanish culture, one of the most emblematics, uh, emblematic cultures. And, um, it was a, it was a really enriching experience there as well because I had never lived in, uh, Spain or uh, Europe. I had done an internship before high school in London. I had stayed there for like five months, but it wasn't, you know, as much of a living experience as this experience was in, in Seville because I was older, you know, I was living by myself. Mm-hmm. I was having to take care for myself, you know. But um, yeah, and so then I've, we can jump to to current times right now and I'm currently in Barcelona. I moved right before the start of the pandemic uh, to do a master's uh, program in shoe design and maroquinerie, so like uh, leather work, leather accessories for the fashion industry. And uh, it was kind of an unfortunate moment uh, because I had two weeks of classes and then everything kind of shut down. Yeah. And we did everything remotely. And as you can imagine, for such a hands-on kind of practice, it became slightly unbearable and almost impossible to really engage in learning how to do this type of design online but um we we did what we could with the with the time that we had and i think it also i I feel proud of what i was able to accomplish because i was only able to focus on my master's program there were no kind of outside you know distractions because we were literally in in lockdown so i think it was also uh another another interesting opportunity in that sense but i think i'm kind of deviating from the questions but basically that's that's where i'm at right now i'm currently in barcelona Mm. i I did want to ask you as an aside uh where are your parents from so i mean i think yeah that that is an important question for this interview my mother is uh from barcelona Mm -hmm. she was raised here and my father is from uh, South America, from the region of Patagonia in Chile. So it's kind of the southernmost region of the country from a town called uh, Valdivia. Okay. And uh, so basically I, I am a first generation North American, but with parents who come from two different Spanish speaking countries. So it's always been a little more complex being brought up with uh mixed cultures you know it's not as if both of my parents come from the same nation which in some ways would have made it easier for me to assimilate to a certain degree Mm -hmm. but um and i think this has been kind of an underlying uh topic of my life is the the constant kind of battle of uh, balancing uh, all of these uh cultures that i belong to either through blood or through education Mm -hmm. so by the sounds of it uh, even though both of your parents speak spanish or are from spanish-speaking countries they come from very different cultures and 
Correct. Yeah. So I, I can imagine for you in the middle being, but also being educated at a French school, it must have been quite confusing as a as a child <laughs> to figure yes. out like what language am I supposed to speak, you know, and so on. Oh, it was uh, it was a big struggle. I think thankfully, um, it happened in my childhood, you know, uh, so it it wasn't as uh, complicated. As if had, as if it had occurred uh, later on in life, or so, or at least that's what people say. That if you're going to kind of confuse a child with so many languages and cultures, better to do it from the formative years mm. than to try to do it later on in life. Even though it's still possible, it just potentially will take uh, more effort. Mm. Um, but I do recall that when I was younger. I mean, I personally don't recall. I have to correct myself. My my parents would uh, tell me that I had difficulties speaking in the beginning because I was being stimulated linguistically with so many different languages that I didn't know how to uh, link them and I didn't know how to separate them either. And so it apparently I in the beginning I would mix all of the languages that I speak. And at the time, I also had a, a Chinese uh, nanny. Oh my goodness! And so apparently, and apparently, she would speak to me in Mandarin, I believe. And so my parents would come back from work, and I would like be repeating the word of the day that she would have taught me. And my parents <laughs> had no idea what was going on. They're like, "Is he mixing Spanish with English with French, or is this something completely out of the blue for us?" So yeah, it, I do. Re I do remember my parents telling me that I I had a hard time uh, learning my languages because there were so many, and uh, and I think also because of the fact that people were conversing with me or at least speaking to me in a mixture of these languages. You know, it wasn't all it wasn't all streamlined as oh he, this person's going to be speaking French to him, this pe person's going to be speaking Spanish. A lot of the people that raised me kind of were uh spoke more than one language right so what i'm assuming is that they mixed languages w when speaking to me which potentially made it harder for me to s separate them but i also think that that potentially helped me learn them at the same time yeah i mean you know what they say uh teach them young and you exactly yeah as confusing as it was you probably absorbed all of that and uh, yeah, since, since we're on the topic of languages, uh, what languages do you speak, Alex? Um, and yes. <laughs> uh, what, what language did you speak at home with your parents and with your siblings? So I uh, formally speak three languages. So I consider myself uh, trilingual. I speak Spanish, French, and English. Um, those are the languages that I was raised in mm -hmm. from the from my youngest years. Um, but now uh, living in Barcelona, but also because my mother's family is from Barcelona, I I can defend myself in in Catalan, Catalan, mm -hmm. which is kind of the the language of the region of Catalonia, whose capital is is Barcelona. And so um, yes, I speak three languages, and then I can defend myself in in Catalan. Mm -hmm. And then at home, um, given that I have a sister that shares the same uh, cultural experience as mine, we were raised in the United States. So we bond in English. That isn't to say that we 
don't speak in the other languages, but I think our modus operandi, as I think that's how you said, we speak in English with one another. I think that's our that's our comfort zone with one another, and it's a it's a it's a bond that we have that only she and I share because our our parents weren't born in the United States, they weren't raised in the United States, so it makes it almost like a special language that we share with one another. And then with the entire family, so with my father and with my mother and my sister, when we are all together, we speak in Spanish. And then French, when we were younger, we would speak between my mother and my sister whenever we didn't want my dad to find out about something. Oh. So it was like this, it was the secret language of the house, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, that's really cool. I had no idea uh, you spoke primarily in English with your sister. I, I For some reason, I thought it was Spanish or French. I mean, I can, I can do it, mm. right? You know, like if we are with other people in a, in a group conversation, but our, I believe that our comfort zone is English. And I think that this is uh, a pattern with uh, first generation children mm, yeah. that we, we create a bond with one another in the language of the country that we were born in, because somehow that, uh, gives us more access into that culture, you know? Right. No, that, that makes total sense. And I think it was the same way for me and my sister. And yeah, English continues to be the, the language that, that we bond in because right. yeah, countries changed, circumstances changed, but what remained was that we were able to talk to each other in that language that we knew so well. So... And it also feel it also feels like a secret language sometimes because depending where you are in the world, it's like... It's the it's kind of the code. I mean, obviously, English is definitely not that secretive <laughs> on an international level. But like there is this there is this weird feeling that I have with my sister that in specific circumstances where we are traveling, like, you know, we we share this with one another. Mm. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. Uh, another language related question is uh, what yes. language do you dream in and swear in? Hmm. So I think that um, it depends on the dream, you know, because I, I definitely have found myself dreaming in like a French movie, you know, <laughs> everyone, everyone's smoking cigarettes and everyone's just, you know, yeah. pissed off about Par Parisian tourists <laughs> or whatnot. But <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's very situational, but again, I believe that, if I'm on autopilot, as I like to call it, I think it's English. And I think it has everything to do with the fact that I was born and primarily raised in the United States. Mm. Um, but I do find myself dreaming in other languages. Okay. I think it's just, it's just very situational. But I think it also is very related to the language that I think in my mind. Like I, as, as a, as a trilingual, I have the capacity to engage in conversation fluently in all the languages that I speak in, depending on who I'm speaking to. Yeah. But I think that if I'm potentially alone in my thoughts, uh, you know, trying to do something, I think the language that dominates is English. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what about I, swearing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think like I, 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 you know, if I'm speaking in French, I will swear in French. You know, I don't need to like switch 
there isn't some i think i'm i'm capable of of countering the uh, the intuitive nature of the action of swearing and doing it in the language that i'm speaking in because i've i have i have found situations where in in my upbringing i have uh discussed you know i've talked with people who are multicultural as well who balance you know a spanish speaking culture along with the north american culture mm -hmm. and i do find themselves mixing within within one conversation whereas i for some reason i don't know why i've i've tried to separate as much as possible mm -hmm. so as not to confuse myself potentially or also just to like you know understand like what what belongs to one language and what is from another. And so I don't find myself mm, engaging in conversation in one language where I'm mixing, you know? Yeah. And so I think if I, if I swear, uh, you know, I will swear in English if I'm just swearing to myself, but if in, in deep conversation with someone who speaks French, I will swear in French. Mm. I will make the effort. <laughs> yeah. I think that's just an indication of just how trilingual you are. And, you know, you've compartmentalized all of those different areas of your brain. Right. Mm. Oh, that's really I, cool. It, it, it was definitely, I think it to me, like, language is the gatekeeper of culture. Yeah. And so I, I found it so important to uh, educate myself in a way that makes me understand the culture better. And so sometimes... I mean, I, I, I don't want to place judgment on other people who have learned languages differently, but I think the fact that I've had to balance three languages from such an early age, I and considering that as a child it was so hard for me to uh, separate them, that throughout my life I have really made the effort of, you know, being aware of, like, what is French, what is Spanish, what is English, and what does it mean to improve on all of these languages? Mm. The, this seems like a good time for me to ask you the identity question. Oh, yes. <laughs> Since, you know, you were talking about, you know, these, like, three separate right. languages and its accompanying cultures. Identities. Yeah. So yes. what percentage of your identity would you attribute to these cultures that you identify with. So honest, I have been listening to your podcast because mm -hmm. it's been extremely fascinating and I have actually dreaded this question <laughs> because uh, to be honest, it, it kind of highlights the, the reality of my life that all of these cultures that I belong to don't really live harmoniously and equally within me. Uh, so I, I say that they are kind of in a constant battle for my nurture and attention. Mm. And so to me, there is kind of almost an element of guilt that has kind of uh, accelerated my need to uh, improve my diction, my language, my general culture, and all of these cultural communities that I belong to. But now that I am, you know, older, I have realized that someone who belongs to so many different places cannot hold them all equally. Mm -hmm. And so I've come, I've kind of come to terms with that reality. And I do believe and I accept that, uh, my North American culture really kind of dominates, uh, all other cultures because of how I think 
you know, when, as, as I had mentioned previously, when I am deep in my thoughts, when I, no one else is stimulating me in conversation, I do believe that I, my internal, you know, my internal dialogue is, is English. And so I, I think that being a first generation U.S. citizen is one of the most important, uh, cultural factors of my life. Okay. And then I would say that the Spanish-speaking cultures uh, come secondly, um, specifically the Spain, um, and then Chile to a lesser degree because we have traveled less to Chile because it's so far away from the United States. There's obviously no direct flight. Right. And also because we have less family that actually lives there anymore. They all kind of migrated to other parts. And my kind of my grandmother, my Chilean grandmother was the last uh, kind of gatekeeper of Chilean culture. And she, she died in the South of Spain uh, several, several years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so my, my Chilean side is less developed. We can say that way. And then finally, French culture, uh, because it is not uh, part of my genetic makeup, it's only part of my educational culture, if we can put it that way, mm -hmm. um, is, is, uh, I would, place it potentially last or be even before my Chilean culture, because I have had more interaction with French culture than Chilean culture. But um, yeah, I, I kind of, it's so to me, it's, it's a very sad question because it's like placing, you know, points almost, you know, yeah. to the different elements that really make you as an individual. Yeah. But um Yeah, you you've avoided I, I actually, you've avoided the the percentages, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to do it my own way. But I do I do appreciate the question because it really kind of highlights something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to address because it kind of to some degree addresses like the the potential hardships of having to balance belonging to different places and then like the reality of realizing, well, I actually don't, you know, know that much about this culture. I don't fit in as much to this one. Mm. You know? So I think it's an important question to ask. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question for me as well. And I think I addressed it in a previous episode. But um, I yes. think you sort of recalibrated as you get older and as you spend more time in a particular country. Right. I think it changes over time. And, Absolutely. and I think for you, it's, it must be especially hard because it's sort of like choosing between your mom's culture and your dad's culture. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and then the, the country that is the country of your citizenship. So, right. Mm. There's, there's a lot of emotional triggers associated to that question. Absolutely. But I, I as, as I've gotten older, I think I've just uh, tried to let go as much guilt that could be associated to those things. Because I think for the longest time, I held culture in such a high regard in the sense that uh, it's, it's such a, an important aspect of how you think and your ethics that, um, that, I, that I just had, I had a very hard time accepting the realities of the imbalance. Mm -hmm. But now, now you just have to accept because as you so eloquently put right now, it's, it evolves over time and over the experiences that you will have in your life. 
So it's not set in stone. Yeah, and and I think the the nice thing about being older is just being able to come to terms with that and right. being able to accept it. And it sounds like you've gotten over that guilt now. I think so. Yes. Yeah, which which puts you at a much better place to embrace all of those cultures, maybe even more than you were able to before. Beforehand, yes, that is true because I think there was a lot of there was a lot more internalized pressure mm-hmm. of having to keep them all balanced. And now that I'm more like cognizant of the realities of the perfect imbalance, you just, you know, decide to engage with those cultures and learn in different ways. And you enjoy the experience a lot more. Mm -hmm. At least that's my personal experience now. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I want to ask you the next question because I think it's sort of related, um, which is uh, what is your go-to comfort food? Okay, so I wish this were... An easy question. Yeah, I can imagine it's a kind of hard one for you as well. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Considering that I enjoy food um, and I I enjoy cooking quite a bit. And to me, cooking also has been a link to culture. Mm. Um, uh, It's it's very segmented as well. And so in reality, I almost uh, have a favorite comfort food for each culture that I belong to in reality. And so I would say that one of the strongest uh, nostalgic uh, memories related to uh, taste is uh, my Chilean uh, palate, which is that my my Chilean grandmother was a, she was a pastry chef and she specialized in uh, Chilean pastries that obviously had uh, French and German influence because in the Patagonia region where my father is from, there was a huge uh, German immigration to kind of populate that region of the country since there weren't many inhabitants. And um, specifically the, the cake that my Chilean grandmother would make that I held in such high regard was this cake called uh, Tarta de Milojas, which is actually a French recipe, which is a millefeuille. Okay. Which is, uh, I think we, we are all kind of aware of millefeuille. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a cake made of different layers of puff pastry. Mm. And so the, the Chilean version of it is that each layer has uh, dulce de leche, which is kind of like that sweet, uh, caramel oh. <laughs> gooiness sinful and the most surreal thing about this uh memory this flavor memory is that my chilean grandmother would make this cake for my sister's birthday and for my birthday and she would ship it to the united <gasps> states oh my god from south america and so it would arrive like two weeks later and it and it would have hardened, so it wasn't even in its optimal um, moment. But since it was something that we cherished so much that we actually, my sister and I, have uh, garnered the the taste of eating eating it uh, slightly hardened, <laughs> and we actually pre- we prefer it more than you know the fresh. Uh, and it's actually funny because my sister has this um, memory as well and she's a, a journalist and she wrote about this in a cooking magazine oh i'd love That's, to read that so it, the magazine is called a uh, compound butter okay and she the title of the article is waiting for abuelitas torta de milojas oh i love that 
She she does a very beautiful article uh, where she combines that uh childhood memory and mm. kind of eloquently uh, links it to the loss of memory of my grandmother because my grandmother died of dementia mm. and the, we realized that she started to lose her memory once she stopped sending the cake and oh that's my kind God. of one of the first indications that we realized that she was um you know going through alzheimer's basically oh. so it's a it's a very powerful uh pastry it's a very powerful dessert in our family because it's imbued with so much uh memory um in all of in all of its ramifications so i would say that that is one of the strongest uh, comfort foods and um in terms of uh spanish comfort food uh i it's very classic but uh as a young child i the first time that i ever tasted this dry cured sausage mm -hmm. called uh fuet Okay. It, it it kind of like blew my mind. And actually, I have uh, I have invited several of my North American friends to Barcelona before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And like, they've become obsessed with this uh, dry cured sausage. And to such an extent that I remember that we were at a party after we had come back from Barcelona when I was in the United States at that point. And there was this uh, little game that we were playing where the question was, What would be your last meal if you knew that you were going to die mm -hmm. the next day? And both of my American friends said fuet. Like <laughs> not even, not even like a full meal, you know, just the dry cured sausage on its own. Because you can have it like an aperitif. You just like cut it up, you know, on a, on a board. Yeah. And you can pair it with bread or just by itself because it kind of, to me, it has the, fl uh, the flavor of umami. Oh it my kind God. of has, everything it's kind of complete on its own so it's uh it's quite sinful to be honest oh my god it's alex you're killing me with your descriptions <laughs> of these different dishes i'm just like oh my god well <laughs> If, well you should come you should come to barcelona i, I have to i would love to see you yeah, here i'll i'll have some of that sausage and oh yes yep. fuet, fuet. fuet. Yeah. you'll see it everywhere it's kind of the the staple it's a classic like you will really just see it in every single bar of uh, of barcelona oh. um and uh yeah so that's that's it's quite sinful i have to be careful <laughs> nowadays <laughs> because of the pandemic just eating fuet all day stuck indoors oh, But, man um, i feel like i could talk about food with you for hours I've, oh yes yeah. it's a it's a it's a never-ending topic with me honestly mm. um And uh, I want to do this quickly because I, I do have two other comfort foods that are extremely important for me okay, okay. because they're, they're gateways to the other cultures as well. I know I've used that word gateways along a lot this interview, but, um, for me, uh, the, in terms of French culture, one of the strongest food memories that I have related to my immersion and to some degree my acceptance into French culture was the traditional like fondue and raclette. Because mm. I remember that when my parents put me into the French school, it was such a difficult uh, moment for me as a young child because I literally didn't speak French at all. Yeah, And so I was a, kind of at a handicap. And I remember that a lot of the parents of the students in my class would invite my family over to their homes so that I would have another opportunity to engage in French outside of the hours of school. Yeah. You know, and so I, I truly kind of 
now looking back on it, I appreciated how welcoming these French families were, and they would always uh, prepare fondue and raclette. So it's kind of this strong and sweet memory that I have of kind of my immersion into French culture. Mm. And um, and then in terms of like my my North American culture, specifically my New England upbringing, I I can I can feel at home if I have like a clam chowder okay. or if I have like a or a lobster. Mm-hmm. That's like quintessentially uh North American for me and it just makes me feel good. So those are the four kind of flavors or f- uh, recipes that really make me feel good, comfortable. Mm. You're you're being very fair to all of your influences. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I had time to think about it, and I realized like it's it's not as easy as like saying oh I speak primarily in English or oh you know because when I thought about it I was like I don't feel that a hamburger or something that's quintessentially North American really suffices in terms of making me feel at home, yeah. you know, that, that concept of comfort food, it's, it's quite segmented. And I think it's so characteristic of my life. Like there's no easy way of explaining, um, how I feel about things because there's always kind of like at least four explanations to everything. Mm. Well, you know what, I'm you're, Go to comfort food question is going to be the highlight for this episode. I feel like oh. the, just the description <laughs> of it killed me. <laughs> um, but yeah, Thank you. I'm going to move on to the next question, yes, which is course. name a place that informed your taste in the arts. So this can be music, art, books, film. Okay. So I think that to me, it really comes down to two cities which are uh, Barcelona and New York City, because um, we would go to Barcelona every summer to visit my mother's family. And so from a very, very young age, I was exposed to the richness of uh, Spanish culture, specifically within fine arts, because there's been historically very important uh, Spanish painters. But in terms of Barcelona as a city, I have been so inspired architecturally from such a young age that I see myself always going back to these references. And that's something that I cherish so much now living in Barcelona, where mm. you can walk down a street and you can see Roman uh, ruins mixed with medieval elements right next to uh, Nouveau building, mm. you know, and so the, I love this concept of being able to see such visual contrast on the city streets. And so Barcelona has been a great source of inspiration, uh, architecturally speaking. And then, um, New York City, when I moved there as a 17, 18 year old kid, mm. um, I mean, there was just so much, uh, stimulus, you know, it was the first time really living in a big metropolis, one of the most important in the world, that there there was just so much culture that could be absorbed everywhere. You know, you didn't yeah. necessarily have to go to a museum. You would hang out with your friends and they'd invite you to some sort of party and there'd be a concert where you would hear amazing live music. Yeah. And so I think New York City really... uh 
is very well rounded in that in the sense that like you can you can absorb culture in so many different ways like high to low you know yeah yeah and we were really lucky in that we were there when we were so young yes and able to absorb all of that i'm really thankful for that period of my life i think it was it's a it, we can even consider it like a a, a culturally important moments in north american uh, history mm. in the sense that like we were in new york city right around the time that like obama became president yeah. there was uh, so much more of a progressive mindset or at least that's what it appeared like mm. and um and I, yeah it it seems like a, a a golden moment for new york city obviously people that are older than us i remember being in new york and people being like oh this isn't new york like new york has already died you know <laughs> but i think i think that it 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 was such an eye opening experience and i think it's what you you said it's we were so young that yeah. we we really were able to experience it in so many different ways mm. Oh man, I miss New York. I do too. Yeah. It, it's a very I think nowadays looking back on it, I I have a hard time uh going through the the habits of daily life. Like living in New York City is is very tiring. It is. You know? Yeah. I don't miss like, that, but I, Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think in hindsight, you know, I've picked out the parts of New York City that were so you know phenomenal and memorable, right. but it does come with a lot of um, absolutely bad stuff too. All the yeah, <laughs> all the trash. I, mean, I, and... <laughs> I just yeah. Oh my god, I remember just being so uh, like mentally, emotionally exhausted mm. th- uh, after a, a, an intense day of you know being in school, you know yeah. work, uh, being in the streets, whatever interactions occurred on my way to get back home and then getting back home and not necessarily having that feeling of relief because you you know you're living with like three or four roommates yeah the dishes haven't been cleaned you know there's <laughs> all these other obstacles mm. so it's it's a it's a tough city but i i admire um the city so much because there's such a vitality to it right um that you really don't see in other places of the world um so on a related note yes where is your favorite city? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think it actually, um, it's probably, I mean, like the thing, this question is obviously related to the cities that I, I've lived in. Right. We're not going to talk about, yeah, the, the different places that we've all traveled to. Mm. I would say, um, uh, Barcelona is very high up on my list. I'm currently living there. And I, obviously I could be very biased because of the fact that like my family is from here, but I feel that I've grown to be more impartial as I've grown older because I've really seen the unique elements of this city, which still kind of mesmerize me. And I think there is to me, two of the most important elements that balance each other of this city is that it's a it's a big metropolis so it's one of the biggest metropolises on the mediterranean mm. and so you have this very kind of surreal visual scenario where you have a big city right on the coast so you can walk to the beach and it's to me that kind of blows my mind because usually 
I always picture like a beach town as being a very small, you know, like fisherman village or whatnot. Yep. Um, and and then you you will have the mountains within the city as well. So the city is actually stuck between the mountains and the ocean, and it kind of creates this very surreal landscape where you always know where you are because you can either see the mountains or you can see the ocean. Mm. So it's 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 very hard to get lost. Maybe potentially in like the medieval center of the city because the streets are much narrower, but in so many of the other parts of the city like you have this uh uh this vision, you know, this this I uh, this spatial recognition that allows you to feel at ease even when you're lost, which I find very uh, special for big cities, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the other aspect of Barcelona um, is that it's, it's globalized, but at the same time, there is a very regional, uh, authenticity to it. I mean, in the past years, we've had all of this, uh, you know, independentist, uh, resurgence, the idea that they want to separate from the rest of Spain right. because they consider themselves to be different than the rest of Spain. And so I, 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 I'm not going to align myself politically with that movement, but what I find so captivating about this, um, this almost beautiful contradiction is the idea that, uh, they have the elements of a global metropolis, but at the same time, uh, trying to preserve this almost regional, uh, culture as well. And I, and that to me is very unique because most metropolises kind of, uh, fall under the the globalized uh, kind of flaw, if we can say, of like everything ends up kind of looking the same mm-hmm. to some degree. Yeah. And you definitely have that element in Barcelona. Obviously, you can find the Starbucks, you can find the McDonald's, but like there is this this duality of of the metropolis that has connections with the rest of the world, and then these elements that are uniquely from this region of the world. And that's why I find Barcelona as one of my favorite cities to live in. Oh, what a beautiful description of your favorite city. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I must visit. And, and I must say, you know, yes, I'm, I'm very jealous that uh, you get to be an art student living in a city that is so visually stimulating and like you said that's you know so authentic in what it has to offer oh it's beautiful i i I honestly you have to come to barcelona and you i mean if you can live here and work here you should definitely do it i i i implore everyone to come to uh barcelona it's a it's a very magical city and on top of it, like people come, I mean, obviously people come here for the summer, you know, there's the whole crew of people who just kind of take advantage of the, the nightlife, mm. you know, it's very famous for, you know, you know, the parties or whatnot. But what people don't realize is that this city attracts so many different types of people because it has so many different things to offer. Yeah. You know, there is, there is uh nightlife, there is entertainment, but there is, there's culture, there's deep culture, there's, you know, there's history, there's, there's gastronomy. So uh, I, I feel like I'm like a, uh, a salesperson <laughs> for the city of Barcelona now. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah, you're like an ambassador for Barcelona. Uh, seriously. Um, I should get paid for this. Yeah. But yeah, uh, with your description of the food and now the city, 
yeah. Just you wait. I'm going <laughs> to Oh, yes, be there Anna, you know I would it. love to see you. Yes, yeah. yes, and I will show you around. Uh, okay. Um <laughs> so I'll move on to the next <laughs> yes, question. Yes. We're going to switch gears a bit because these next few questions are about your third culture kid identity and I yes. think in your case I do have to specify that because of the unique nature of how you were raised, you would, I think, be classified as a domestic TCK in the sense that, ah, yeah, you grew okay. up in America, but, you know, there's a, a subculture basically of, you know, the, the French education and the Spanish influence right. and so on. But yeah, wh- when did you first hear the term third culture kid and realize you were one? So in all honesty, I had never heard the term third culture kid until you uh, reached out to me mm-hmm. and uh, used it. Yep. And um, for the longest time, I really just uh, introduced myself or I introduced myself. I considered myself a multicultural person. That's really the term that I felt uh, most comfortable using when describing myself. And it's actually interesting because after hearing it from you, I you know, research the term in itself to, because I was confused because I was like, what, why is it so specific to three cultures? And what I realized is that, um, it refers to the culture of the country from which the parents originated. And then the second culture refers to the culture in which the family currently resides. Mm. And then what I find most interesting is that the third culture refers to the distinct cultural ties among all third culture individuals yeah so basically we are the third culture exactly and i had no idea and i found that so fascinating because it's it's a it's placing a, a kind of a metaphorical territory to the limbo that we all kind of live within our ourselves mm. and what I, and what i find interesting is that like it's it's a it's a it's a commonality that we share all TCK individuals, but at the same time we can never uh, bond as deeply as if we were all you know from South Korea, exactly. Or if we were all from Spain, because it's like each each individual shares a different combination of cultures, and so that's what I find interesting. That's like even the thing that bonds us together is still distant enough where we can't all you know share the same experiences yeah i think you sort of touched upon the next question which is what do you find to be the hardest thing about being a multicultural Mm. or cross-cultural person and yeah i agree as nice as it is to run into somebody who is a third culture kid um you get talking and you realize that you grew up in different countries you you can't be the same you can't be from the same third culture, so to speak. Exactly. But something that I've realized as I've been interviewing my guests and asking them the same set of questions is that there are a lot of similarities, in fact, between us. And as different as we are, the the commonality sort of bond us and bring us together in ways that maybe we didn't realize. That is true. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's something to love about being the type of the the types of people that we are. And so for you, I I was wondering what's something you love about being a multicultural person living in this world? So I think mm, what I 
admire the most is kind of the open-mindedness that it has granted me throughout my life. Um, because in, in many cases in your upbringing, you've had to balance potentially opposing, uh, you know, or contradictory uh, codes of conduct. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't necessarily know how to explain it, but the idea that the cultures that you belong to, they sometimes they overlap and contradict each other with specific things. And so at a certain point, you have to become more analytical and uh, choose, you know? And so I think you, you have this, uh, this greater perspective on the decisions that you can make based on the cultural information that you have. And I also think something that I uh, have realized now more um, is that you become being part of so many cultures, you are able to assess how some characteristics and some elements are uniquely tied to specific cultures. Because mm -hmm. I think when you potentially don't have that much exposure to so many different cultures, you kind of uh, whitewash things and you don't necessarily know how to uh, pinpoint where uh, those elements uh, stem from, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think, I think that, that to me is something that I, I have learned to appreciate where it's like, Oh, this, this behavior, this uh, entrepreneurial positivity is truly American. Or this this uh, this cynicism is purely Parisian, <laughs> but like I I think like we also we have to I mean I think it's a to me in this current climate at least in the United States it's very delicate because people could potentially say that it's a uh, slightly racist but I think there there is there's something to really analyze here because being within all these cultures you are able to understand that there are certain behaviors that stem from the cultural education that you have. Mm -hmm. And then, there, and then there are things that have kind of been adopted at the global scale. But, um, I, I do find it interesting how you can isolate, um, uh, education and specific, uh, mannerisms to different cultures. Yeah, I mean, it has to have an impact on how you think and how you perceive others, because if you think about it, you're in school for at least 12 years and then and then obviously higher education after that. But yeah, 12 years sitting in one place, uh, having certain ideas drilled into you that that has to be in there somewhere, you know, when you're absolutely living this world. And it and on, on top of it, it depends on how much kind of outward exposure your culture has had on a global scale like uh, ha have they really adopted uh you know different uh mechanisms that aren't uh you know uh, autonomous to their own nation or or have you you know have you been brought up in a more uh, multicultural environment i find, i mean i i find it truly fascinating because it's it's something that in in this globalized world we potentially uh start losing the the connection to where ideas and behaviors stem from mm -hmm. culturally yeah
Yeah. And I think the the nice thing about being a third culture kid in a globalized world is that, you know, we come from a place where we've been exposed to so many different cultures and yes. yeah, have the ability to understand situations and, and sometimes accept that maybe there are differences. But right. I think at the end of the day, it's I like to think that there are more commonalities between us than there are differences. But that's just me. <laughs> I, I I think that's true. Mm. I think in terms of what matters, we have more in common. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we've arrived at the final question in the TCK questionnaire. And yes. uh, yeah, the question is, where is home for you? Mm-mm-mm. So I feel like as you've started to realize, none of these answers are very easy for me. <laughs> so I would say that it sounds cliche, but home is where the heart is. Mm-hmm. And so my my heart is broken into several little pieces throughout the world. And so I have my my home base where my parents reside is Boston. My sister lives in New York. I am attached to New York City as well. My mother's family lives in Barcelona and I'm currently living in Barcelona so I feel like I I can feel I feel comfortable in many different places mm-hmm. and um, that's that's the easiest answer that I can give you yes yeah fair enough and yeah I think with you as you know feel with a lot of my other TCK friends it's kind of hard to know where you'll be in the next five or yes. 10 15 years <laughs> and that's sort of the beauty of it so absolutely mm. there is a there's a sense of freedom like you have no boundaries or at least the the boundaries that do exist don't uh frighten you mm. as much as they would to other people yeah because you've always kind of been in this in between space if we can call it that way yeah yeah, well, that that concludes the the TCK questionnaire, and I must say, I've learned more about you in you know these thirteen questions <laughs> than it's crazy, than I did yeah. in you know all the time that we've known each other. But yeah, well, what it only makes it only makes sense. I mean, you you're a very good interviewer, so you know exactly what to ask in order to really get to the essence of these TCK. Uh, kids, I mean, to be uh, honest, people. I think I was just asking myself those questions initially. Um, well, then that's why it makes perfect sense how like accurate it is because you're really trying to get to the nitty gritty of your own identity, and I think it works perfectly for everyone else as well. Yeah, and in a previous episode, uh, I tried answering the the questions myself, and yes, I remember. Yeah, yeah. and I, and I got stuck. Um, as I was, you know, lying in bed trying to decide, oh my God, like what percentage, (laughs) (laughs) what percentage Korean am I? And, you know, what's my comfort (laughs) food and all of this, because I think I'm constantly changing. And I like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it shows that you haven't like closed the doors in terms of how culture will affect you in the future. Mm. And and I think that's a very important lesson is that even though we are trying to define ourselves culturally and to better understand who we are, it's this idea that like, this is where we lie right now. But since we are TCK people, like we will move, we will evolve. Mm. 
So I, I had some additional questions, but I think I yes. wove some of them into the the questionnaire itself. Um, but yes, I did I, I did so. want to know: Have you ever thought about what kind of person you would have become if, in an alternate universe, you had just attended a regular American school or grown up not in Boston but in Barcelona, say? Or you know, there there were so many options. Right, 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 right. right. I think it would have been potentially easier to integrate into the cultures that I would have to balance because it would mean that I would have to balance less cultures, you know? Mm. And um, and it also, if given the hypothetical situation of having gone to an American school or having been grown up in Spain or Chile instead of the way that I did, there would have been more of an emphasis to assimilate into a more dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that is kind of the case with a lot of kids who kind of balance different cultures. It's like the idea that potentially it's easier to just submit to uh, the more dominant culture based on where you're living. And so I think in those situations, potentially my life would have been slightly easier in terms of that I would have felt a stronger attachment to my American uh, identity or a stronger identity to my Spanish or Chilean identity, as opposed to having to juggle American culture, North American culture, French culture, Spanish culture, Chilean culture. Mm. So I do think in an alternate universe, it would have been potentially easier, but maybe I would, I obviously would not be the same person. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. Have, have you ever asked your parents why they decided to send you to French school? Okay, so <laughs> this is a very um, long story, but I will try to make this as short as possible okay. because I do believe that it kind of enriches the interview okay. because it sheds light on my mother's family. Um, basically, the it all kind of stems from a rift in a family tradition because um, my Spanish grandmother's family were uh, Germanophiles, Germanophiles. So it mean they were educated in the German language, mm. and uh, they were very uh, comfortable with the codes of uh, Germanic culture. But, you know, they they spoke in the household in German. That my grandmother had a, a Fräulein, Fräulein. I don't know how <laughs> pronounce it in English. Yeah, and the house. I mean, it, this is we're talking about a, a completely different time period that has no connection to the current world that we live in nowadays mm. but basically like before world war one the, the german empire was at its peak you know and so its culture kind of dominated internationally and uh, the first uh, foreign schools in europe were german schools before the french schools mm. and so my uh, spanish ancestors from my grandmother's family they were all fluent in German, which kind of allowed them to travel and do business with the German-speaking world. And so as a young girl, my grandmother also was a, a TCK to some degree because she was living in a multicultural household. She was living in Barcelona, speaking Spanish, uh, Catalan, and German. Uh -huh. And um, 
And so with the, with the rise of the Third Reich, you know, German culture kind of shifted. And so, and the international community started to look at German culture differently, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless of this, uh, kind of, shift in German, in the perspective of German culture, the outward perspective, um, my grandmother's family still decided to continue educating my grandmother in German because it was, it was almost as, I mean, I think it was fully assimilated into their family. Like it was as if they also considered themselves part of German culture, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, uh, my my grandmother actually after uh, after the Spanish Civil War they they fled Spain and they came back after there was no uh, bombing of Barcelona um, so after the dictatorship officially began but there was you know there was some sort of a peace you know in in the country um, the uh, she was raised at a convent school of German nuns mm. in Barcelona. So it was uh, uh, German nuns that had fled Germany uh, during the rise of the Third Reich, and they, they stayed in Barcelona. And, um, and basically, my, my grandmother, she despised the nuns, you know, because obviously kind of a, a religious education is very uh, strict. And on top of it, like a Catholic yeah. education, you know, I uh-huh. think everyone already kind of has an idea of what that means. And on top of it, German nuns, you know, so I don't <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to say anything because I don't want to stereotype, but like people can come to their own conclusions. Yeah. And so my my grandmother learned to kind of despise uh, German culture to say the least <laughs> and i think it i think it also kind of co it, it co it it went hand in hand with kind of anti-german sentiments mm. because it was right after the end of world war ii so i think uh german culture was kind of at a at a weak point in in the eyes of the western world mm-hmm. to say the least and so then from that moment on my my although my grandmother was raised uh, german um, she uh, despised German culture. <laughs> um, and so then when it was her turn to have uh, children, she actually decided to raise her two daughters in the French school. And But huh. very weirdly enough, she decided to raise her two twin sons at the German school. So even though she was not fond of uh, German culture, she still decided to educate her two sons in the German school because she was aware of the quality education that uh, German schools offered, but she wanted a different type of upbringing for her two daughters. And so she considered French culture to be more feminine, mm-hmm. to say the least. They're more, uh, m- more rich in literature and in the arts. And um, so that's kind of the beginning of the story of French culture in our family. My my mother was raised from, you know, from a very young age, from potentially like five or six in the Lycée Français of uh, Barcelona. And so then it she became impregnated with uh, French culture uh, and it kind of has followed her throughout her life. And so then it only felt natural for her to want to give that opportunity to us because it felt something so <clears throat> uh, so normal to her, you know? 
it, it, it's a fundamental pillar of her own identity as well. Yeah, I had no idea there was this backstory behind why <laughs> you attended French. So, so your mom must be fluent in French as well. <laughs> she is fluent in French and uh, English and Spanish and Catalan. And since she, you know, there's Catalan kind of is a mix of French and Spanish. So she even feels comfortable in Italian. All of these romance languages kind of help her mm. uh, kind of tackle her way through other romance languages. But um, yeah, she, she, she's fully fluent in French, as is my, my aunt. And then my two uncles are fully fluent German. in Germany. And they've, and they've actually, in German, and they've actually kind of adopted German culture to such an extent that uh, one of my uncles uh, lives half of his uh, time in, in Berlin. So it's it's kind of pr- profound how uh, an education at such a young young age can dictate um, your your cultural identity, you know. Yeah, and it determines like what you're comfortable with. But uh, can I just Absolutely. say it, it's so fascinating that you know your grandmother. It was like a social experiment almost <laughs> with their with their yes. children. Let's see how they turn Absolutely. out if I yeah. give half of them a French education, half of them a German education. But so I also twisted. Yeah, but I also <laughs> love that if it weren't for the German nuns, exactly, maybe things would have been different. Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh my gosh, that is but, um, that is hilarious. I am so glad so yeah. I asked you this question. Oh, yes. No, I mean, I, it's definitely something that I don't really explain that often because I end up having to obviously explain that my grandmother is not a fan of German culture yeah. and that <laughs> isn't necessarily the nicest thing to say about your grandmother. But I mean, it's the reality of the situation. So I'm not going to hide it. You know? And it also is just it's kind of the foundation of this shift in tradition, because I, I find it outstanding that she had kind of the temperament and the audacity almost to break away from her own family mm. in the sense that like her entire family was raised in German and it was so embedded in them that you know she kind of revolted against it you know yeah like an act of rebellion almost exactly exactly so it's it's interesting how tradition can uh, shape people but at the same time how tradition can make people rebel you know oh thank you so much for sharing that story of course yeah thank you how yeah how fascinating i'm I'm going to be thinking about this story for for the next <laughs> few days i feel like i've i've always told her that she should write a story uh, of her her autobiography or at least some short stories because i find it so fascinating and so colorful the idea of like a little Spanish girl being raised by German nuns who fled Hitler. Yeah, you know, in Barcelona. That, that so. that's a novel in itself, right? Mm. I, I've been trying to convince her, but we'll see. Well, uh, maybe your grandmother can listen to this episode and <laughs> decide yes, to finally yeah. write it. <laughs> exactly. Maybe <laughs> this will be the push that she needs. <laughs> as, as the final question, since you mentioned, you know, all of these different influences, German, French, Spanish, what holidays do you celebrate as a family? So, I mean, I think in that sense, that's probably like the easiest 
question so that I can answer for you. Yes, <laughs> because I mean, we we have been raised like uh, Roman Catholic, so it isn't like my parents, you know, belong to different uh, religions, and you know, and it's all it's all Christianity, but even it's all Roman uh, Catholic. So in that sense, uh, in terms of religious holidays, we've we've always. Uh, celebrated um, all of the, the the same holidays, but it, it is funny because in Spain, it, historically, it's been a very Catholic uh, country, um, and so they what it, what blows my mind here is that there's so many uh, religious holidays here in Spain that it, like uh, most of the time, I feel like we're in constant uh, vacation, and they do this thing where it's called like. Puente, which means bridge, mm-hmm. where it's like if the if the the day of the the saints, you know, if it's like a very important saint, they'll you know have the day off. If that day like falls on a Thursday, then they what they do is that they'll do a bridge mm-hmm. to connect it to the weekend. So then they just take Friday off as well, you know. So ah. we're always doing these. We're always connecting bridges and jumping weekdays, but um. Yeah, I mean, Spain is definitely a country of uh, of uh, the eternal uh, holiday, <laughs> in my eyes, comparing it to other places that I li- that I've lived in. Yeah, even more reason to go. <laughs> yes, Hannah, you have no excuse now. <laughs> uh, I, I find it so funny that um, the the question about the holidays was the easiest question of the bunch. <laughs> <laughs> Every other question was just... so loaded. Yeah, I was like, okay, this is part one, then it's part two. Yeah, mm. I, I tried, I tried to make it as as succinct as possible, but it's it's always so hard for me to try to explain myself because, as you can tell, everything is so segmented. Even though I try to like unify everything. Yeah, I mean the the where are you from is such a loaded question for all of us, and so yes, yeah, absolutely. I understand exactly where you're coming from, and and yeah, you you explained everything so beautifully i'm going to have to keep everything in the interview (laughs) okay lovely (laughs) um yeah well i i think i've asked you all the questions um that i'd prepared and yeah it's been so nice catching up and it has hannah yes i definitely would like to see you in person i have not been to south korea so i will come at some point, once all of this unease uh, settles down, I, I will definitely travel because I, I, I love to travel. Yeah, me too. And I'm going to definitely come and see you as well, um, especially yes. since we've had this catch up. And wow, if you know, I could meet your grandmother in person, that'd be lovely, too. And oh, yes. Yes, of I course. I feel like she'd have so many stories to share. Yes, I think some of them would probably not be able to be aired on the podcast <laughs> when she starts talking about the German nuns or any other experience that she's had with Germans. So some things will just be secrets. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it was World War Two. I mean, she's she probably has exactly. reason to you know hold those yes. grudges. So, that is true. Yeah, that is true. Yes. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, before I wrap up, I want I did want to ask you, um, you know, what was it like? talking about your childhood I know some of these questions were very personal and yeah and and you mentioned you hadn't really thought about your third culture identity before what was it like sitting through (laughs) these questions I mean I think what you've been able to do is make me have to think about it in a very 
in a very impartial way. Because I think one of the hardest things throughout my life, as I kind of already mentioned before, is kind of the emotional guilt that I had uh, trying to be honest with myself in terms of uh, like how well do I know Spanish? How well do I know French? How Spanish am I? How Chilean am I? How American, North American am I? And so I think you being so... um, blunt in some instances, you know, being uh, focusing on how all of these elements um, influence you has has allowed me to become more honest with myself and um, and has given me uh, clarity. And I think that's that's very important. You know, so I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity of being interviewed by you. Oh, Thank you so much for saying that. Um, it means a lot. And it's been lovely interviewing you. I almost feel like we should do a whole episode just on comfort food. And yes. <laughs> Your next podcast, Hannah. The next no, one. No, yes. I've, I've had this happen with my other guests. Everyone gets so excited yeah. talking about food. That oh might my be my next podcast. But uh... Honestly, yeah. <laughs> it, I, think, I think there are endless possibilities here, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, thank you for joining me today uh, on this journey. And, uh, and it's been lovely catching up. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.